I want to begin this morning with a happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you that are here this morning. I hope it's off to a good start and you have an opportunity to celebrate and feel appreciated. We're we're grateful that this was a place that you have chosen to worship this morning. And uh, as you heard in the announcements, we had some gifts for those of you coming in either the south or east entrance, and uh, we will move those to the east lawn so you can grab one on your way out if you weren't able to on your way in uh, this morning. But we want this to be an opportunity for you all to feel celebrated. Uh, Moms are are a special uh, role in our life, and we want to come forward and be grateful for those things. And we always try to make an effort when we approach holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day to also acknowledge that sometimes these days can be tough. For some folks, uh, sometimes we're grieving the loss of a loved one that played that role. Sometimes we, we yearn to be that role and we're not. There's a lot of different ways that this could impact folks' emotions. And so we, we just want to recognize all of you that come into this service today and whatever emotion it may foster in your heart to just know that you, you are loved and we're grateful that you're here. And we want to continue to, to press into God and allow his love to be the ultimate anchor of our souls. And so as we prepare to open up in worship or open up his scripture and his word, let's just take some time and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to join us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, that you are the potter and we are the clay, uh, that we can bring all of our, our future, all of our worries, all of our past, all of our struggles, all of our, all our anxieties, whatever it is that we may carry into this room today. Um, our joy, our devotion. God, we surrender to you and ask that you would be glorified. We ask that your spirit would join us now, that it would strengthen us, encourage us, and lead us into a greater understanding of who you are. Open your word once more to us, God, that it would be living and active, and it would mold us and shape us into the people that you desire us to be. We thank you for this day, and we give you all the glory that you so richly deserve. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we get started today, a quick update on uh, things related to the pandemic and protocols and procedures here at the church. I told you a while back, this will kind of be a regular conversation that we have from time to time because things are continuing to change and they're somewhat fluid. And and I just want to begin with the positive news that numbers are trending in the direction we want them to trend. So praise God uh, that we even have. Yes, go ahead and praise God for that. It's been a hard year. Um, And it's not easy to make these decisions, as you all know, and so I'm just grateful that we have arrived at a place where we can evaluate and ask, hey, maybe we can make some changes. And so uh, we'll continue to give some more updates over the next couple of weeks. The main one that I wanted you to know today is that when we came back during the Lenten season and the Easter season, we provided a nine o'clock service. Uh, And one of the main reasons for that was because we wanted to make sure that for those who in particular wanted to gather in a smaller crowd than what you might see at 1030 had the option to do that. And, and on our peak attendance days like Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Commitment Sunday, it was great to be able to provide that. But we kind of had a, a threshold that we had in our minds to, to justify the nine o'clock service. And by and large, it wasn't really that needed. Most of you want it to continue to just come to the 1030 and we feel like we can accommodate that. So we wanted to get through Mother's Day um, providing that, but we, we don't intend to make that uh, a, an option moving forward. We think the 1030 service will be sufficient. Part of that is because college is wrapping up and our college students will be heading back home for the summer. We've, we've seen historically that summer months are filled with travel and people are in and out. And so we feel pretty confident that we'll be able to accommodate uh, the needs 
uh, for attending worship just with our 1030 service. And so just want you to know that you won't see that as an option moving forward. We've got a few other updates related to that over the next couple of weeks that I'll continue to, to share with you. But again, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your support. Uh, as we seek wisdom to make continued decisions. Uh, it's been a great season. I love Mother's Day and the, the spring season as a whole. It's a busy season in our home. I don't know if it is for you. And, and it really kind of kicks off around that Easter holiday. We've got birthdays that surround Easter and it just kind of feels like a whirlwind of activity. And if you were to zero in on our home, you would look in on Jennifer in particular, trying to manage all those different expectations of going and getting goodies for Easter baskets and then getting the plastic eggs for Easter egg hunts and getting ready to plan a big family meal because we've got family coming in town, ready to be a hostess and, and planning birthdays, all these different things. And in the midst of it, in the midst of all that, she'll eventually make a trip to the fabric store. And sometimes she'll take our daughter, not every time, but a lot of times she'll take our daughter, she'll walk into the fabric store, she'll buy some fabric, and then she'll come home and she will transform our front study into a small sewing factory. And it is just like a sewing workshop there for the next few days. It's she will begin to craft, design, work on a dress that she will make uh, for my daughter to wear, our daughter to wear on Easter. And she has done this every year. And it's so fun to watch. I'll admit there are times because of the busyness of the season that it feels somewhat stressful. Uh, it feels like there's a lot going on and she's trying to, to meet this deadline. But overall, it's just a really great thing to watch. And it's been really neat to see her do this throughout Annabelle's life to the point that now you can walk into Annabelle's closet and gather a bunch of clothes of these handmade dresses, this wardrobe of these handmade dresses that Jennifer has made for her through the years. I actually brought a picture I didn't bring them like Kevin did, but I at least got a picture for you to see them that we can show you up here. And, and you can see very similarly, the first one there starting at a very small, just cute little dress. And you can just see the story of how Annabelle has grown through the years. And, and I just love it. It's one of my favorite things to watch Jennifer do. It's, it's one of a thousand examples uh, that I could point to of what a great mom she is in a lot of different ways that she demonstrates her love to her kids as a mom. But, but in particular, the reason I'm telling you this story is because what I really love about it is every year when she's in there making that dress, it takes me back to when Annabelle was born. And that moment in the hospital where Jennifer was first handed Annabelle, and it's a very special moment, and she's sitting there and she's holding her daughter for the first time, and she's just emoting over her, talking about how much she loves her. And in the midst of that, she says, I can't wait to make you all sorts of little dresses. And she said it there. And, and, and I didn't think anything of it in the moment. I thought maybe it was just kind of an emotional reaction to having a baby girl, but to see that that's, you know, like she meant it. You know, like I'm gonna literally make you dresses. And so to see that take place year after year, I see more than just my daughter wearing some fabric, right? I see the delight of a mother's love. And, and I see my daughter wear it proudly into church on Easter Sunday, and I see how she delights in her mother's love. And it's, it's just a really remarkable thing to witness. There's something special about a mother's love, isn't there? You ever wonder, like, why we have these things, these just pure expressions of love in life, especially those that are revealed as God intended them? And, and it makes you wonder why we are so blessed by them. And for me, I have this strong conviction at this point that we're giving these things because it helps awaken our hearts to God's love, right? It points to just the depth and the richness that he has for us. In fact, Isaiah 66, 13 says, as a mother comforts her child, 
so will I comfort you. Right? So when we think about the love that we see from, from mothers or from any earthly relationship as God intended with that, that purity to it, it, it should awaken our hearts to the way that our God, our Father, delights in loving us and the way that we in turn should delight in that love that he has given to us. And that's exactly what we're going to discuss in greater detail this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you've been with us at all recently, that will sound a little unusual because we've been going through a series in the book of Revelation. We've been working through these letters to the churches in, in Revelation. We started, with, uh, we started with Ephesus. We started on Smyrna last week. And we still have a little bit to finish, <clears throat> excuse me, with Smyrna. But um, I didn't really want to go there today because the last part of that letter has to deal with the second death. And there's something about the second death that just didn't feel like Mother's Day. And so I thought maybe we should deviate in some way and, and, and do that. But I, I didn't want to lose uh, part of what we talked about last week. You know, if you think back to what we discussed with Smyrna, Smyrna was a church that was deeply afflicted. We talked about a, a, that affliction being inner and external distress and, and how you manage those things. And so I, I kind of want to stay true to what we've already introduced to Smyrna and, and have this element of how do we manage those seasons of affliction. But I also was mindful of the fact that we've been talking a lot about commitment, right? April 25th was Commitment Sunday for our church. And, and I want to take a moment just to give you guys some updates on where things stand with that. Uh, it was a great celebration on the 25th, and over the last several weeks, we've encouraged you to, to work through that survey that was intended to be just an intentional conversation for you to reflect upon your personal commitments as well as the commitments we want to make together as a church. And, and it's been so amazing to see your responses. Like, it has exceeded my expectations, both not just in quantity, but in content and what you're sharing and, and some really awesome things that I just am very excited about. A couple that I would highlight this morning is, is we tried to capture a succinct way to refer to some of the goals that we want to adhere to as a church family. We talked about 220 and 200, that we want to, within the year, have two recovery groups focused on renewal, 20 individuals or families that are committed to advocating for the orphan, and then 200 baptisms within the next year. And, and so just by Thursday, Right, and I haven't had a chance to read through all the responses that came in over the weekend, but just by Thursday, we've had more than 47 people come forward with an interest in facilitating or participating in recovery ministry. That's like enough for maybe seven or eight groups, uh, not just two. We, we had up to 18 individuals or families that have uh, expressed a strong interest to advocate for foster care and adoption. Uh, and as we saw today, we're celebrating baptisms. We had Eleanor today, we had Bethany a couple of weeks ago, and there was an overwhelming response to people supporting this call to go and invest in somebody in the area of discipleship. So thank you for your response. I'm excited for the way that God is stirring those things. You still have uh, today to finish that survey. I would encourage you to do, the, do so if you haven't yet. We, we love hearing what God is doing in your life, and we look forward to seeing where it leads us. And so I, I want to capture that excitement and that discussion of commitment as well. So that was kind of my thought process going into today was how do we, we capture a little bit of this season of affliction, some level of commitment, and sprinkle in Mother's Day. Uh, and you may feel like that's a little difficult to achieve, but there's numerous examples in the scripture that kind of grab your attention when you think that way. But the one that, that continued to pull me back that really got, grabbed my heart was the story of Hannah and, and Hannah's 
uh, birthing of Samuel and just that whole narrative and that story. So we're going to look at that story today. Uh, It's really the whole first chapter of Samuel. I didn't want to read the whole first chapter to us. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read just these kind of summarization verses that we find in the end, starting in verse 26, uh, that kind of helps set the tone. And then we'll go back and I'm just going to kind of retell the story and we'll hit several lessons to take away from Hannah's season of affliction and waiting and the birth of her son Samuel. So follow along with me in chapter one, picking up in verse 26. And this is Hannah speaking about, uh, speaking to Eli. It says, and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. That's a really beautiful summarization of Hannah's story, but the context within it is so much more meaningful. It gives us a greater understanding of of really what led to this point. And so I I just kind of want to back up and work through the story. I'm not going to read the verses verbatim, but you are more than welcome to keep your Bible open and just kind of follow along in chapter one as we look at the story and, and get some really important lessons Uh, that we see in Hannah and her life. And and when you begin in chapter one of 1 Samuel, you're introduced to Hannah's husband, Elkanah. And and Elkanah, one of the first things we are told about Elkanah is that he has two wives. I don't know about you, but that's a recipe for some conflict. And if I were to think through that a little bit. And it's it's an interesting point of discussion, really, that I'd like to just take a brief moment and use this as a reminder of different ways that you can read the Scripture. We talked about this before, but I think this is a great example that when you read through God's word and you encounter certain things that don't make sense, like polygamy, like how how is God making sense of this? This is God's people and and it's a polygamous relationship. Is that what God intends? One of the ways to think through reading stories like this one is uh, to use terminology that I first heard uh, offered by uh, Jim Dennison, if you guys are familiar with Jim Dennison, is to think about the difference between prescriptive and descriptive passages. Right, meaning there are certain things that you read in the scripture that are prescriptive. They are prescribed to us. Very specific. Do this. Don't do that. But then there are other sections of scripture that are just merely descriptive. Right? And so there's a lot of things that are described in the Bible that don't necessarily equate to God condoning or descriptions for how we should be following or practicing certain things. So there are a lot of things that are described. There's murder is described. Adultery is described. You find all sorts of crazy things in the Bible. That doesn't mean God condones it or that we're supposed to enact it. Uh, Polygamy falls in that line, especially when you consider in the greater context of the scripture and see that there are prescriptive things about marriage. You can anchor it in, in what was intended in Genesis with Adam and Eve. You can anchor it in New Testament instructions about husband of just one wife. There are numerous ways to better understand this. But that also being said, That doesn't mean you can't read certain descriptive stories and learn from them, right? The book of Acts is predominantly descriptive of the early church, but there are so many things that we can learn from it. So all that to say, when you read your scriptures, because you need to be reading those scriptures, if you encounter something, uh, you need to ask for that spirit of discernment to go, okay, how is this prescribed or described and how does that impact me? So we'll, we'll try to model a little bit of that this morning with this story. Uh, because it starts with this de- declaration that it was a polygamous relationship. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now, the way that those two women are distinctive or, or distinguished here in these opening verses is that Penina had children. Hannah did not. And that's how they were known. That's how they were 
defined, and it introduces us to Hannah's affliction. She was barren. She couldn't conceive. Now, you may hear something like that, and that may not seem like too significant of an affliction from your point of view, but especially in in ancient biblical times, it was one of the ultimate tragedies for a woman. Because the expectation was that the woman would conceive and give her husband a son to carry on the name and to receive the inheritance. There is a tremendous amount of pressure for that expectation. And if a woman was unable to do that, it brought on tremendous amounts of shame. And so this was a very significant affliction for Hannah. Now, we may not be able to relate to that way of thinking. Not many families uh, go into a marital relationship with that sort of expectation, right? That a woman has to conceive a son and carry on a family name. That's not really as prevalent in our society. But let's not uh, make any mistake to, to gloss over this and recognize that barrenness is absolutely a heartache and affliction that many, many couples endure today. In fact, for many folks that are either in this room or joining us online, it's why Mother's Day is so hard. Because they want a child. They don't have one. For whatever reason. And it's a difficult one. It's, that's a journey that I'm familiar with. It's part of our story. And, and I can relate to those, those wounds and that heartache because you sit there and you think, this is a good thing. Aren't we supposed to be able to to experience this role and then it doesn't happen and you get frustrated because you're like, I know God could grant me a child just like this, but he's not. <clears throat> and you're reminded of that pain over and over and over again. It's a deep affliction. And that's, that's what Hannah is carrying. Now, how long had she been wanting a child? We don't know. Doesn't specify how long they had been on this road. All we see in the scripture is that it says year after year. Now compare that to the church in Smyrna, right? The the church in in Smyrna was going through a season of affliction, but we saw that Jesus said to that church, listen, this this persecution is gonna be intensified, but it's gonna be momentary. I used that phrase for 10 days, which was just kind of an analogy of a short amount of time. And so Smyrna was familiar with affliction. It was gonna be intensified, but just for a short moment. What we have with Hannah that is different is that this is an enduring affliction. This is a long-lasting affliction, year after year. And therein lies this, this tone that absolutely colors Hannah's story, which is that this season of affliction introduced and ushered in a tremendous season of waiting. Waiting on the Lord waiting for her deepest longing to be met and fulfilled. Can you relate? How many of you are here today and able to identify with those seasons of waiting? Maybe it's not for a child. It's something else. Some other longing, some other desire that you've cried out to God for. Maybe it's relief from an addiction. Maybe it's a a marriage. Maybe it's the perfect job. Whatever it is. You find yourself waiting and waiting and waiting. Those are difficult seasons. And how, how do we manage those? My question for you is that if you've gone through that season or if you're in the midst of that season, what is it doing to you? Is it weakening your faith? Is it diminishing your resolve? Or are you finding yourself growing stronger, growing in maturity and dependency on God? Those seasons are very instrumental in how they shape us. And so Hannah becomes a very 
meaningful example for any of us that have gone through a season of waiting. Now, before we see her specific example, what I also want us to look at in this particular story are the responses to her affliction by the other people that are around her. There's at least three different responses that I want to highlight this morning that we can observe in this story of Hannah by the people that are surrounding her. The first one is from Penina. Now, what we discover is that Elkanah's other wife is not some confidant, not some friend who's going to come alongside her and empathize and encourage her. No, she's actually described in the scriptures as her rival who provokes her towards greater distress and bitterness. She's ridiculed. She's, She's enduring greater hostility in the midst of this waiting and in the midst of this affliction. It's a good reminder to each of us that a lot of times when we go through those seasons of waiting, when we go through seasons of affliction, there are going to be people in our lives that make it worse. There are going to be people in our lives that try to provoke us, that enlist and incite greater frustration and anger and hostility. We need to be mindful of that, and we also need to use this as a word of caution and evaluate our own responses to other people who are afflicted, and how do we respond to them? Are we those that offer consideration and compassion, or are we provoking? Right? It's, a, it's a tremendous question that we have to consider, and we have to be able to reflect upon and make sure that we aren't those that are provoking others, and yet also prepare ourselves for the fact that that is going to happen. So what really stands out to me is that there is no mention of Hannah's retaliation. Now, maybe she did. I guess we can't say definitively. But I feel pretty confident to say it's not listed in Scripture. And that, to me, is remarkable, that Hannah was able to, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her affliction, when she was provoked towards greater distress, she didn't respond with any sort of vengeance or retaliation. And as a result, Penina begins to just fade from the story. What a great example, because we all know that there's this tendency, especially when we are wounded and when we're afflicted, that when others come in alongside us and deepen that wound or add to that pain, our impulse and our instinct is to respond with hatred, to respond with frustration, right? Hurt people hurt people. There's a reason we say that. And yet, that's not what Hannah did. She didn't respond to hatred with hatred or hostility with hostility. She didn't devote any time or energy to those who were trying to bring her down in the midst of her season of affliction and waiting, and nor should we. Now, similar to Penina's response, if you kind of jump ahead in the story, another response that we see to Hannah's affliction is from Eli. All right, so if you gather this scene as you look at the story, Elkanah has taken his two wives to the temple to worship, and they're, they're there as they customarily would go through when they're preparing the feast. And, and so Eli, as the priest of the Lord, is watching all this, and, and Penina is bringing all this hostility and aggression to Hannah. And so she is weeping bitterly. She won't eat. And so she's over there praying. And we see that Eli is watching all this unfold, and he sees Hannah in her distress. And what does he do? He accuses her. He accuses her of being drunk. He doesn't come alongside her and try to better understand what's causing that pain. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't come in comfort. He just says, you're drunk, be gone. Priest of the Lord, watching somebody there in affliction, and he offers judgment rather than comfort. What another great word of caution for us, especially the church. How many times 
has the church fallen into that same trap where we've stood in the halls of society and we've looked in on the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, the afflicted, and we've rendered judgment rather than comfort without even knowing the situation. How many times have we looked in on the poor and said, well, if you would just get a better job, if you would just work harder. How many times have we looked in on the foreigner or the refugee and said, well, you don't really have a place here. Worried about our own comforts, our own securities. How many times have we looked on the prostitute and said, shame on her. How many times do we stand in our little doorways and render judgment on the afflicted rather than comfort? It's a great word of caution to see Eli's initial response. And so of the three responses that we see to Hannah's affliction, the one that we should probably model ourselves after more than any other is Elkanah, her husband. All right, and what we see is that Elkanah is worried about his wife. He, he cares for her. One of the unique ways that this is described is that he gives her a double portion when they're there sacrificing uh, their, their offering. And it says that he offers this to her because he knows that she's sad and because he loves her. So we see that there is a, a genuine, sincere love that Elkanah has for Hannah. And so he is coming alongside to try to comfort her, which is another reminder. When we go through seasons of affliction, when we go through seasons of waiting, there are going to be those that render judgment and ridicule, and there are going to be those that seek to comfort. Gravitate to the latter. So if you're in that season... Maybe one of the things you should do is think through, who are these people in my life that are trying to build me up and get me through this? Those are the folks I need to be around. This is why we, we rally around one another, is to encourage one another in those seasons, to be there as a voice of comfort, to follow this example. That's exactly what Elkanah is trying to do for Hannah. Now, how does he do this? I love his technique here. I love his approach. He sees that his wife is hurting, and so you know what he does? He asks questions. Why are you so sad? Why are you so downcast? Why won't you eat? What, why are you so troubled? He wants to know. He's seeking to understand, right? And when we see somebody in that season of affliction, is that not what we should do? Come alongside them and say, hey, what has you hurting so badly? Help me understand your pain. What a great example for each of us to follow. Now, if you watch how Elkanah continues this discussion, he leads it to another follow-up question that I think is pretty important for us to consider. He says to Hannah, am I not worth more than 10 sons? Now, I think that's a pretty sincere statement. I'm gonna give Elkanah some credit here, right? Because we know that he loves her. What he's trying to say is, listen, I know you want a child, but, but I love you. We have each other. Isn't, isn't that enough? And I think it's a, a genuine, sincere statement, but let's not get ourselves. If you read that, it could kind of be read with a different tone, right? There could be some insensitivity here where Elkin is looking at his wife and he's like, why are you so sad, man? You got me. Hello. Aren't you glad you married me, right? I mean, there could be some lack of awareness that might have taken place here. But, but really, the question presents us to really what I think is that the core issue for Hannah's journey what he's asking her is, are you content? Yes, you don't have. Yes, you're afflicted. Yes, you're wounded. But can you be content with what you do have? Now that is a really powerful question. And that's one that, that we all need to wrestle with in our own lives, especially when we go through these seasons of affliction 
and waiting. And Hannah gives us a great response. What we have here is a story of Hannah's own journey to figure out, can I truly be content? And so we see how she wrestles with that question. And what we discover is she doesn't run to vengeance. She doesn't run to the false hopes that her husband can be enough. She doesn't run and retreat into greater isolation and greater despair. She runs to prayer. She runs to God. That's what she does with her affliction. What do you do with yours? No doubt it was heavy. No doubt there was doubt. No doubt there was questions and frustration, but she kept pressing in to God and she prayed. That's what she did with her distress. What will we do with ours? Now what I love is the model of how she prays. The first thing she does is she asks boldly. She's pretty transparent. Lord, give me a son. Right? She doesn't try to sugarcoat it. She doesn't try to hide her desire. She, she openly confesses, this is what I want. She prays boldly. And so should we. I, I think we can all acknowledge that there are times, especially when we go through those seasons of affliction and waiting, where we, we kind of tone down our prayers and we pray out of timidity more than boldness. And we're reluctant to even ask for the desires of our heart. And James chapter four says it very clearly, you do not have because you do not ask. May we never be found guilty of failing to ask God for big and bold things. Let us have the wisdom and the maturity to know that it may not always work out, but let us at least ask, right? Because the next part of James chapter four is just as important. You don't have because you don't ask God, but when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. And that's where this story continues. What are, what are Hannah's motives in asking for a son? Right? And this is where we see this really beautiful progression that takes place in Hannah's life. Lord, give me a son. And if you do, I'll give him back to you his whole life. She makes a vow. She makes a commitment. That's what this affliction and this season of waiting is producing. Now, isn't that interesting? Right, because you could stop and think to yourself, well, isn't that what she should probably do anyway? Like, wouldn't that kind of be her, her natural inclination to dedicate her children to the Lord, that they would want to serve the Lord? If that was kind of a natural expectation, then it begs the question that maybe without this season of waiting, without this season of affliction, she may not have had that same resolve. She may not have had that same level of determination and obedience that maybe that's exactly why God gave her this season of waiting and gave her this season of affliction so that she could arrive at this point of desperation and say, whatever you give me, I'll give right back to you. It's almost as if God took her through it to say, okay, now you're ready. Now you're really ready to be the mother that I've called you to be because you're gonna surrender the son not to your own personal pleasure, but to my glory. <laughs> There's Hannah's motives, right? Lord, give me this, not that I might find fulfillment, but that so you can be glorified. She has taken her season of waiting and her affliction to glorify God, and so should we. Can we say the same sort of prayers? Have you prayed those same sort of prayers? God, give me these things. Whatever you give me, I will turn around and give right back to you. <laughs> That's a remarkable faith. That's a remarkable commitment. And so this is how Hannah prays. And after Eli's accusations, 
She explains the nature of the situation. He blesses her and she leaves and the Lord grants his favor upon her and she conceives and gives birth to a son, Samuel. And, and now you see that God has answered her prayer. And the question begins to emerge, will she honor this commitment? Will she honor this vow that she's made? And we discover the details, right, that after the child is weaned, which means about two to three years, she would then take him back to the Lord. Can you imagine that? Like, do your best to put yourself in her shoes, to year after year wait for a child and then be given that child and know you get just a couple years before you have to surrender him right back. What obedience. What courage. Interesting excerpt in that part of the story. She goes and tells Elkanah her plan. Hey, by the way, um, don't know if you caught this or not, but we're going to give him back. And we see Elkanah's response. He says, do as you wish, and may the word of the Lord be found trustworthy. And Elkanah continues to demonstrate this support, which is another good example that when we make these sorts of vows and these commitments, we have to do it in the context of community. That's why we're here. It's why we have discipleship groups. It's why we have community. It's why we have fellowship, because we know that honoring these commitments is difficult, and we need people in our lives that can encourage us to maintain that obedience, to maintain that courage, and to move alongside one another to see them come to fruition. That's exactly what Hannah had with Elkanah, so they honor this commitment, and she brings her child to the Lord. And when she honors that commitment, it results in worship. <laughs> worship of God Almighty. That's, that's how they respond. They worship God in his faithfulness and in his provision. What an incredible story. What, a, what an incredible example of commitment that we have here from Hannah and Elkanah and the way that they have pursued these things. What courage do we see modeled for us in her faithfulness and in her commitment? So there are so many lessons that we can learn by looking at this story, but there's one in particular that I want to accentuate as we begin to try to bring this to a form of resolution. Right? It was this journey of contentment that ultimately what Hannah discovers in this season of waiting to the point that she's willing to, to be obedient to this commitment is she discovers that what really is all that she needs, the sufficiency that she longs for is not a child, but God. He is enough. And so she's able to take all that he gives her and give it right back. Can we do the same? Do we have that sort of contentment? Now here's the thing when you begin to consider answering that question. Hannah's story has a happy ending. All right, God gives her a son. He gives, her back, gives him back. Samuel becomes wildly influential in the story of God's people. Hannah gets a whole lot of other children, and we sit there and go, well, yeah, man, I could do that. That's the end result. But I think it's worth mentioning this morning that there are numerous examples in Scripture where it doesn't work out that way, where God's answer remains no, and the affliction and the waiting only continues. You ever read through Habakkuk? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 has a pretty remarkable description of such a season. In verse 17 and 18, it says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will be joyful in God my Savior. Think about that. There was no happy ending in those verses, no no overwhelming abundance of provision. The fig tree doesn't bud. There's no grape on the vines. The olive crop fails. The food is not produced from the field. There's no sheep, no cattle in the stalls. And yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he is enough. And so what you have in common with Hannah's story and those verses in Habakkuk is it's not really about whether God answers that deepest longing or not. It's about arriving at a place to whether he does or he doesn't. He is sufficient. And so what really speaks to me in this story is when I think about Hannah in the midst of her stress, distress and Elkanah coming alongside her and asking those questions, putting ourselves in those seasons of waiting and distress and hearing those same questions offered to us, not by some confidant or spouse, but by God himself. When we're afflicted, when we're waiting, we hear God draw us in close and say, why are you sad? Why are you hurting? Why so downcast? Am I not enough? And that's a tremendous question we should always ask ourselves. Because the truth is, church, you may not get the desire of your heart. You may not get that dream job, the perfect marriage, the perfect children, whatever it is that your heart is longing for. But when you stop and we begin to shift out of the mindset that isn't focused so much on what we haven't received, but rather focused on what we have received, what do we discover? What we discover is not that we're missing out on certain things, but that God has given us Jesus And that is more and always will be more than enough. Because in Jesus and through his cross, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we are reminded that Jesus delights in loving us. We are adorned by his love. We are clothed in that love in so much ever-increasing glory. Time and time again with his grace, with his forgiveness, with his mercy, and it is more than any trial or storm could ever offer to threaten to take away. We are clothed in beauty instead of ashes. We are given joy instead of mourning. We are given garments of praise rather than despair because our God through Christ demonstrates that he delights in loving us. And when we truly believe that, and know it, then no matter what season of waiting or affliction we go through, we have enough to say that he is sufficient and we delight in his love. And so let that be our commitment and our resolve through all the storms and all the seasons that may come our way, to know that we are loved and to delight in his love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift that we have in Jesus. And I pray that each and every one of us would be able to see and trust in its sufficiency. God, that no matter what may befall us in this life, we would make a firm declaration in our hearts and our souls and our minds that we will always wait on you. God, that we will rely upon your word that our, our soul finds ultimate satisfaction in you and in you alone. 
And God, that you would put reminders in our lives, put people in our lives that encourage us in those seasons of affliction. God, that you would enable us to be those voices of encouragement for those who are around us and are afflicted, to encourage them once again of the incredible love that we have in Jesus. And God, that we would delight in that love as we wait on the ultimate fulfillment of that love coming once again and allowing us to be with you forever. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray all these things in his precious and holy name. Amen and amen.